Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. I feel like that was one long run-on sentence there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. It's all good. Yeah, it's all good. It's fine. It's fine. We're perfectly fine, right? <laughs> Joe and I were just talking about the scheduling for the next couple of months and like the hiatus that we're taking, but also sort of recording halfway through, but also sort of not. And we're a little discombobulated, I think. Mm-hmm. And then we've got this great episode that I'm <sighs> anticipating that I've been looking forward to, but mostly so that I can purge my brain of any thoughts about either of these two texts because I hated them. <laughs> Yeah, so listeners, this week we're talking about I Love You, Beth Cooper, and I think that not since the kissing booth have I so strongly wanted to recommend you not bother with the text. Yes, to the point that I actually tweeted out (laughs) to people that they should not read the book and they should not watch the movie because there isn't even really a good option here. Like, neither one of them is worth your time. No. So if you were on the fence and you haven't checked out one or both of these, I'd strongly encourage you to just listen to this conversation because we're going to be feisty. Yeah. And I don't think either one of us would say use any precious time to check either of these out. No, and I think I just, I was looking earlier, and I think I Love You, Beth Cooper has 34% on Rotten Tomatoes, the film version, mm-hmm. which I still think is not our lowest yet, because I feel like Kissing Booth had 13, but I might have made that up. There's enjoyment to be had in the Kissing Booth, the film, <laughs> not so much in the book. I mean, if anything, the good thing that we can look forward to about this episode is that Larry Doyle is a very old man, so we can (laughs) rag on him all we want. That's what I was thinking, you know, because the book is, from a level of craft, better written than Mm -hmm. The Kissing Booth was, but The Kissing Booth was written by a child, (laughs) and this is a grown man, Mm -hmm. and the just sheer volume of homophobia, mm-hmm. ableism, yep. slut-shaming, shaming. misogyny. It's just, this book is a terror. This man is a public menace. It's a mess, and we're going to tell you all about why mm-hmm. as soon as we're done our homework. Joe, do you right. have anything redeeming in the homework for us this week? I do, and Yay. what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to give a shout-out to our very lovely listeners. Yay! So two weeks ago, as one of the bonus appendix episodes, we asked people in the YA forecast to let us know which books they were looking forward to. We heard back from a few people. We sure did. And I have that list like on my notes on my phone, just like ready to jump. Oh, do you? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I pulled out the three that I could find. So I thought I'd just quickly run through them. We did retweet the couple of people who responded to us on Twitter. And then we also got our very first listener email. (gasps) You didn't tell me we got email. Okay, well, Brenda, you do know how to check the email because you you gave it out to people the last couple of weeks. I know, but we both know that me learning the email was just like as far as it's going to go. Just such a baby step. Okay, well, we got an email. We've actually gotten two emails, but this one was specific to this particular call. Yay! The email is from Becca Allen. So thank you, Becca. And she recommended four different titles that are coming out in the next little while. So she recommended Rose Interrupted by Patrice Lawrence, Mm -hmm. The Black Flamingo by Dean Adda, Pet by Akwake Emeze. I probably totally butchered that name, so I apologize to that author. And then finally, The Deathless Girls by Kieran Millwood Hargrave. Okay, those are four really good titles. Like, I haven't heard of any of them, and the titles are all phenomenal. Yeah, I think Becca might have given us some texts that are a little bit more genre-specific. She also gave us a recommendation for a film that has apparently been trapped in development hell. But she did say, if the movie ever comes out, I really want to hear you rag on this book and presumably the film. It's Yay. called Hush Hush. Have you ever heard of that one? I haven't, but that definitely sounds like something that I'd want to rag on. Yeah, I think it's one of those supernatural romance with angels kind of things. So. Oh, good Lord. It's like, oh, yes, okay. Very much in our wheelhouse. <laughs> so that's Becca. And then we also heard from Max Baker, who has interacted with us several times on Twitter. Hi, Max. 
and Max recommended four different books. So he recommended Have a Little Faith in Me by Sonia Hartle, Unpregnant by Jenny Hendricks, Prince Charming by Rachel Hawkins, and Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McKinston, which uh, I know the last one is actually also recommended by the third person, who is Cody Landman, who is also interacted with us. Yeah. (laughs) And Cody recommended a couple of different texts, including Slayer by Kirsten White, which is a Buffy the Vampire Slayer book. I have that. My, My toddler's babysitter has lent it to me, and I just haven't read it yet, but it looks phenomenal. Yes, I've heard very good things about it. I'm going to try to read it for homework before we go on hiatus. That's my goal. Cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. Cody, keep an eye out for that then. <laughs> so Cody also recommended The Love and Lies of Rukshana Ali by Sabina Khan, Opposite of Always by Justin A. Reynolds, and finally Footnotes on Love by Jennifer E. Smith. Outstanding recommendations, folks. Like, first of all, all three of you hit titles that I hadn't heard of, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest perk of doing this is finding out about books I wouldn't have heard about otherwise. And I'm excited to add stuff to my hold list. I've been keeping those lists, the ones we got on Twitter, I have them on my phone in case I, you know, stumble across them. But right. a reminder that if you want to talk to other people recommending great books, you can find us on hashtag HKHSpod. Yeah. 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 So thanks, Becca, Max, and Cody for A, taking the time to make some recommendations. And, yes. And B, you know, for listening. Because we appreciate you, obviously. Absolutely. All right. My homework. So my my resolution, because our homework episode was exhausting. <laughs> I'm trying to go back through all the stuff that I had like half read and half abandoned and couldn't remember if I'd recommend it or not. So right. I'm going to try to make a goal of either only talking about books that are upcoming. Okay. Or only talking about books I've actually finished in the homework. Just so that the next time we do a recap, I'm not quite so overwhelmed. Fair. Okay. I like it. Yeah. So um, I'm going to talk about a book that I finished. I actually read it in like a day. It's fantastic. And I have talked about it on the podcast in homework before. So I'm glad I got to it. But it's called Shout by Lori Holtz Anderson. Okay. So um, if the name Lori Holtz Anderson is familiar, she's very famously the author of Speak, which we will be getting to in the fall in the new season of the show speak is one of the very first ya books to deal really directly with rape and the aftermath of sexual assault in the way that wasn't you know the sort of issue oriented way of those books of the 70s that we've talked about before and this book shout is anderson's memoir of her own experience of rape that led her to write speak but also of what it's been like to sort of be the author of that rape book for her whole writing career. Oh gosh, is that a designation she's been affixed with? Yeah, I she I mean yes, but also she talks really eloquently about the privilege but also the emotional labor of spending a lot of time talking to teenagers about rape and having them disclose their stories to her. Shout is not it's not an easy read, but it is a really fast read. We all know that I'm particularly interested in sort of innovations in the form in YA, and Shout is entirely written in poetry. Oh, okay. And I actually want to read an excerpt of it, because I think it's a poem she wrote about the process of making the adaptation of Speak, so it sort of fits into our wheelhouse particularly well. And the only thing you need to know to make sense of this poem is that the main character of Speak, the character who has been raped and has sort of silenced herself as a result, is named Melinda. So it's called Wired Together. She says, Movie shoots bedazzle authors, even one set at a grimy high school in Columbus, Ohio. 96 degrees, 9,000% humidity, air conditioning shut down for reasons unknown. I tried to stay out of the way, slowly melted into a puddle of author sweat, worrying about making mistakes, even though the story was all mine. The electrician hunted me down. He looked like a guy in a Dire Straits video, Money for Nothing. Remember him? He looked like my great uncle, big square guy, head like a paint can, hands the size of catcher's mitts, smelled like work. He found me standing at the back of the infernal gym next to a table covered with cables and rolls of black sticky tape. He put down his tools and studied his calloused hands, cleared his throat, and whispered, I'm Melinda. I wasn't sure I heard him right. His iron-gray eyes met mine. Ten thousand volts arced through the air. Then he spoke louder. I am Melinda. And I could hear, I could see the little boy hiding inside of him. 
I stuttered, twitching in the electric atmosphere, wishing I had the right words. He wasn't there for a chat. He picked up a roll of black sticky tape meant for insulating, for holding things together, and said, A lot of us working on this film are like her, cause, you know. He blinked and the tears escaped. It happened to us, too. Wow. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> the whole book is like that. Super powerful. And it's really interesting because she wavers in the text between, like, meditating on just rape culture as a concept and, like, the way our society fails children. She tells this one story of, like, giving a reading at a high school. And when she's in the – she finishes the reading and the, before they can do, like, the Q&A part – or it's before she goes back for her second reading or something, the principal pulls the fire alarm. What? Why? So Because he doesn't want the kids talking about this stuff because, quote, that doesn't happen in my school. Uh, right, because silence is so much better. Right. I mean, she's literally there to talk about a book about how damaging silence is. Like, it just makes you want to scream. Anyway, it's an amazing memoir. If you're interested in issues of rape culture at all, if you've read either Speak or um, Anderson's, I think, other most famous books are Winter Girls, which is about eating disorders. And The Impossible Knife of Memory, which is about being raised by someone with PTSD from the war in Afghanistan. Oh, wow. So yeah, she I mean, she deals with really, really heavy stuff, but she's really good at it, <laughs> as you can see just from that excerpt. So anyway, I just wanted to share it because I said I was going to read it eons ago, and then it was just sitting there at the library. Like The whole list has been crazy on it, and then there was just a copy in the library on Monday, and I picked it up, and I was finished it by last night. Wow. So yeah, I strongly, strongly recommend it. And we'll be hearing more about Lori Holtz Anderson when we take a look at Speak in the new season. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm glad I've got a little bit of time to work myself up to it. It's not an easy read, but an important one. Yeah. Which yeah. is part of the reason why we're doing this. Totally. And one of the reasons why I wanted to read an excerpt from Shout this week is because we needed an example of good writing. Seriously, I needed to remind myself about what this kind of literature can do. Because I love you, Beth Cooper is such a dumpster fire of a book. Oh my gosh, you have no, you have no idea how often. <laughs> I mean, I, okay, so listeners, funny backstory. I began reading this probably about a half week before you did, Brenna. Yep. And... I texted you and said, is it too late for us to change the book? Because I don't think I want to do this. And in fairness, I did not take you seriously enough. I was like, <laughs> ugh. I was like in the middle of Congress, which is a big conference here in Canada, annual conference. And I was in the middle of Congress and I was packing. I've got all this stuff going on. And Joe's like, let's change the book. And I'm like, I look at the library and I'm like, none of no. our next two books are available. I'm like, this is a giant hassle. It's fine, Joe. It's fine. We'll just go with the book. And then I started reading it and I was like, oh, man, it's very bad. Yeah, you you basically mommed me. You were like, no, dear, you need to suck this up. You made this decision. And I thought I was being savvy because this is, so this is the 10-year anniversary of the film. And I thought, you know what? Anniversaries, like people like to go back and revisit texts and think about why did this film or this book come out at this particular time? Like what sort of meaning did it have? What kind of cultural legacy is it leaving? And the cultural legacy of this particular text is, dollar bin i'm guessing <laughs> that's where it ended up because it is insufferable it is really bad and i yeah i know i fully cop to not really taking your your complaints that seriously because i assumed i assumed it would be funny bad like i assumed we would have hilarious things to talk about and i'm not even sure that we do <laughs> this might just be a lot of yelling folks this might just be a lot of yelling everybody i mean <laughs> yeah i guess Maybe I should tell people what the book's about. Yeah, because we have actively told them not to read this. Yeah, we have. So now we need a plot summary. Okay. Yes. In fairness, the plot is... Um, it's paper thin. It's paper thin. It's yeah. not going to take me long to get through this. Okay, so I Love You, Beth Cooper is a novel written by Larry Doyle. I should say that Larry Doyle's other claim to fame is that he wrote for The Simpsons. And Beavis and Butthead. And Rugrats and Daria. Mm-hmm. He has a pedigree. And he writes for The New Yorker and for Esquire. And I, I don't understand what is happening here. Yeah, he was also born in 1958. So he wrote this quite late into life. And the film was made when he was like in his early 60s. 
and he wrote the screenplay as well. So it's important to note that part of the reason why there's so many problems, like the adaptation is not any more enjoyable is because he probably didn't really feel like he had to do much to change it because he also, fun fact, wrote this book when he couldn't get it made as a film. So he was trying to write this as a film and then no one bit, so he turned it into a book and then later it got turned into a film. I'm literally so mad. Sorry, plot summary us away. No, but I think all of that is worth bringing up because this book and more so the film have like a... Like, they want to be, like, a gross-out teen sex comedy mm -hmm. from the 70s. Yeah. But it's so anachronistic that that fails dramatically. Anyway. Yeah, it's old man yells at penis in the sky. Yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't help that they cast a guy who looks about 37 to play someone who's supposed to look like he hasn't even been through puberty yet. Anyway, mm. we're not on the film yet. Okay. No, no. <sighs> okay. <laughs> Okay, so what is Beth Cooper about? So the protagonist, this is the story of Dennis Cooverman, who inexplicably spells his name Denis. I thought his name was Denis. Let's call him Denis for the rest of the podcast. Well, because he spells it D-E-N-I-S, which you mm, discover halfway through is a very clever gag because he's one letter off of penis. Ha 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 ha. Yeah. Ha ha ha. He seemingly only writes it that way so that Doyle can make that joke later on. And there's a lot of that kind of forced gag stuff in this book, which is part of what makes it so insufferable. I think if he had just written it a bit more straight, it would have been a lot less painful. Uh, yes, yes, yes. So Denis Cooperman, or The Couve, as his friend calls him, <sighs> so bad, is the valedictorian of a high school in a small town. And he has been sort of a nondescript dude his whole life and at the opening of the book he decides that he's going to use this moment of being the class valedictorian and giving this graduation speech to announce that he is in love with beth cooper mm -hmm. aka the title of the book he gives this kind of well, frankly total jackass speech actually um in which yep. he outs his best friend he asserts that one of the girls in the class has an eating disorder mm -hmm. he asserts that the reason the bully is a bully is because he's quote sexually abused or something mm -hmm. the speech is awful and it's supposed to be like revenge of the nerds kind of thing i guess but it just reads as tone deaf and awful or even that he's being brave because he's speaking the truth that nobody else will yes but it just comes off as so obtuse and inept in all in all of the ways that people in pop culture like to diminish nerds and I'm putting yes. nerds in quotation marks with as yes. though like this person doesn't understand how social interactions work so of course he would do something like this but yes. it's also meant to be endearing and it's yes. neither it is neither of those things it is awful yeah so the speech obviously upsets everyone in the school, except for Beth, for some reason, who comes up to him afterwards and says that although he embarrassed her, the speech was ultimately really sweet. And so he takes that as an opening to invite her to a party at his house, a party that is not actually really happening. Mm -hmm. This is around the point, I guess, where we find out that Beth has a boyfriend. He's like a military dude. Yes. And he threatens Dennis with bodily harm. Worth noting that in an inspired bit of casting, she said sarcastically, um, they cast the rapist from Degrassi Next Generation as Kevin. Oh. So that was that was fun to watch. Interesting. I know him from later Resident Evil films. He's the villain in one of the, either the sixth or the seventh one. Right. Anyway. He just wears sunglasses and looks like a bad extra from The Matrix. <laughs> He also appears to be about five feet tall in the film, which I kind of enjoyed. Yeah, but and uh, yeah, and that's weird given the dynamic that's supposed to exist between him and Dennis. But anyway, so Dennis's mother and father are like super encouraging of the fact that he's having this party because they know that their son is a complete social outcast. Yes. This worries the dad a little bit more than it worries the mom. So the dad is really excited that he's having a party, buys him a bottle of champagne to share with his friends and tells him where the condoms are in a pretty awkward scene. <sighs> and Dennis's mom helps him buy snacks for the people who are coming over. And it's like, I don't know, the parents are fine. They're completely not fleshed out. Yeah. So 
The only person who shows up for the party at first is Rich. Rich is Dennis's best friend who seems to not really be all that bothered that he's been outed. But he also is in, I guess, denial about his sexuality? Well, that's supposed to be the joke, yes. Maybe just leave this poor guy alone for five seconds. Rich's gag is that he only talks in movie quotes. Mm-hmm. It's not at all insufferable as the narrative progresses. Oh, and we've dealt with this kind of trope before, right? Where a character mm-hmm. has a kind of verbal tick or a personality cue that is amusing or unusual or something memorable. And in this case, it just seems like Doyle was like, well, I can't be bothered to write a legitimate character with dialogue, so I'm just going to pull from every movie that I can think of. Yeah, and it's weird because at first you think it's going to be sort of themed. There are these like little um, epigraphs, epigrams? Oh, I can't remember which one. Epigrams to every um, chapter. Yes. And they all come from teen movies. Like they're all characters in teen movies, things that they have said that relate to the theme of the chapter. Mm-hmm. And so it would at least have made sense if he only spoke in like teen movie quotes, because that would connect that piece. But he doesn't. He uses quotes from all movies. It's quite distracting. Because if you know movies, you know, like take me, for example, I literally know every line of dialogue from any movie. So if somebody says even just a couple of words, I'm immediately going to be able to tell them the exact movie, the year, the director, and I'm not going to elaborate beyond that. I'll just say, oh, wow, I'm pointing out that you're talking in movie references. Oh, wait, I'm only talking in movie references. Oh, wait, I hate this all. I hate everything (laughs) about it. This is what you do when you're a slightly homophobic old dude and you don't actually want to write a gay character who has like Mm -hmm. any kind of resonance whatsoever, right? Like I presume that's what's happening here. Right. Well, and it's so hilarious because of course everyone, everyone knows that Rich is like the gayest gay that ever gayed. And that's why his character is so funny because at the end he does come out as gay. Ta-da. After a threesome with two cheerleaders, of course. (sighs) Okay, sorry. So Rich is at the party. So we're at the party, (laughs) and nobody else is at the party. And then Beth shows up with her friends Cammie and Treese. And I am not actually sure which one is Cammie and which one is Treese to this day. So Cammie is the hotter, more vacuous one. And Treese is the fuller-figured girl who is a bit more sexually active, I gathered. But they sort of flip them in in the film version, maybe? I got really confused in the movie. Anyway, it doesn't matter. They are basically one-dimensional stereotypes of high school cheerleaders, and they're treated as such mm-hmm. in the narrative. Kevin also shows up, and in an attempt to attack Dennis, he trashes Dennis's house. There's a whole bunch of dick jokes and gross-out humor and blood and stuff in this scene that I'm just going to skip past. Mm-hmm. The important thing to note is that Denis gets injured in every single encounter that he has with pretty much anything and that is another recurring joke which is that he just becomes progressively more bruised and grotesque looking as he goes yep so they escape beth helps dennis escape and at first he thinks this is because she loves him but actually she's just worried that kevin's gonna get court martial kevin's in the military apparently comes to nothing apart from that but sure (laughs) they go out on this old rural road Uh, and they get drunk, and they attempt to tip over a cow for reasons, Uh, and then they go to another party being held by another vacuous popular girl who everyone hates and who is sexually promiscuous because all of the young women in this book are vacuous and everyone secretly hates them and they are all really slutty Mm -hmm. yeah doyle never met like a stock character type or a stereotype that he couldn't incorporate into this book uh yeah exactly so at valley woolly's party he gets attacked by kevin again and then beth drives kevin's car i guess it's a hummer through the house to help them escape again no one gets injured no no one dies you know, no. as you might expect if you were to drive a sports utility vehicle used by the military into yeah. a home with hundreds of people into it. But it's played for laughs. It's all just funny. Yeah, it's hilarious. Then I can't remember. I think they go back to the high school after that. and Yes, there's a shower scene. The girls do a slutty cheerleading act first. And then they take off all their clothes and they get in the shower. Mm-hmm. And Rich, Rich has joined them throughout all of this them. because he's just one of the girls. Yeah, ha, 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 ha. That's hilarious. 
And then, um, oh, Kevin's back again, I guess, and beats him up again yeah, or something. A wet towel competition. Right. Rich comes. rescues him by hitting the bullies with a wet towel. So they escape again. This time they're in Beth's car, I guess, because Kevin shows up at the school with Beth's car. So they take Beth's car to this cabin in the woods. Mm-hmm. Teresa's father's that he's presumably been having affairs with because the recurring gig with her is A, that she's fat, B, that she's promiscuous, and C, that her dad is a philanderer who's hiding money and valuable goods from her mother. But that she actually like got her parents divorced somehow, or is that the other one? No, that's the right one. So they get to the cabin. They all get drunk again. Therese and Cammy and Rich have a threesome because they want to test to see how actually gay he is. Right. Apparently, that's a thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, they discover they're all going to go to the same school and major in acting. But who could care? Who could care? Why would you care? Beth and Dennis at this point are outside having like a big heart to heart conversation where Beth is like, I peaked in high school. This is all there's ever going to be for me. And I guess instead of uh, recognizing that people have different gifts and depths and that life is a long journey and that you don't really know at the end of high school what's going to happen to you, Dennis is basically like, yeah, I guess you're kind of slutty and stuff. So you probably don't have a life after this. I'm going to university. I'm going to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. And thanks for helping me to realize that You're not really a person, but I guess what's most important is that I learn something. Yeah. And then Kevin's back again. This is what, fourth or fifth time at this point? I think this time the fight is in the lake somehow or someone. They take him out into a canoe, but because Denis has been doing lifeguarding lessons, he's actually able to hit Kevin overboard and then he saves him. And then he rescues him. But it's only because he doesn't want a dead body to ruin his GPA or his chances of getting into college. It's because the principal at the beginning of the movie makes some joke about how she should call Northwestern about his little stunt at the graduation speech. And he's like, oh, please don't do that. And she's like, "Ugh, I don't really have any power. And with your GPA, you'd have to basically kill someone to not get in. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, and behold, he almost kills someone. So he rescues Kevin. And I think the the police are there. And I... Don't remember why. I don't remember why nobody gets charged, but nobody gets charged. And then oh, it's Teresa's dad pays off the rich girl with the Hummer incident. Right. Which is not a euphemism. We're talking about the party where Beth <sighs> drove the Hummer into the right. into the wall. And then I think Beth, for some reason, she makes Dennis not press charges against Kevin so that he doesn't go away. I don't like I don't basically everybody gets home safe and Rich comes out and Rich comes out, but then in the epilogue we find out that he didn't like being gay either. So now he's quote waiting for the next thing because like that's what sexuality is. Mm-hmm. Um, also, don't forget the really important and moving moment where Dennis tells Beth. Because Beth is really worried that when they get to their 10-year reunion, she's not going to have anything to show for the next 10 years. And he very heartwarmingly tells her that as long as she doesn't get fat, he'll definitely marry her after Mm -hmm. the 10-year reunion. Yeah, which is great, except she's apparently got a fat mom, so genetics are not on her side. No, she's definitely going to be fat and therefore worthless. And all of this is supposed to have been funny, and I literally did not even crack so much as a smirk. Once. No, no, no. Like every, every, this is meant to be a laugh out loud, rolling on the ground comedy. This is meant to be like in the style of Animal House, Weekend at Bernie's, sort mm-hmm. of like. But also with the heart of like a John Hughes film. Yep. Because so many life lessons are being learned. Literally I think it's no supposed to be. Lessons. Not a single life lesson. I think it's supposed to be like a gross out Ferris Bueller's day off. Yeah, yeah. Which is why like the, the casting in the film is supposed to be so funny too. Hello. Ho, ho, ho. There's a guy from Ferris Bueller's day off in the, in the movie. Mm-hmm. I want to ruin anything. It's I not ruin funny. ruin everything. It's not funny. And it's, no. I don't mean just like I am not interested in sexist homophobic, fatphobic, ableist jokes, Mm -hmm. which is the majority of the quote-unquote humor in this book. But the examples of that are not funny. Like, there's not any moment where I'm like, oh my God, I'm laughing at this thing I shouldn't be laughing at. I feel... No. No. None of it's funny. It's all tired. It's all boring. It's all 
hot girls are sluts and don't have futures. Yeah, and nerds are idiots with dicks that they don't know how to use. Yeah, and all guys are either violent or pathetic. And Mm -hmm. it's just bad. It's just unredeemably bad. That a grown man wrote this book, I find appalling. And the idea that someone who was also capable of writing the characters on Daria? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Could write this garbage fest, particularly vis-a-vis the female characters? It honestly doesn't make sense because, okay, so when I picked this, I picked it because I saw the film was celebrating 10 years and then I backtrack and then I found out who wrote it and I looked at the pedigree of the different kinds of projects that Larry Doyle had been working on and I thought, well, you know what? This is going to be well-written. It's going to be clever. It's going to be witty. It's probably going to be good. I had heard the film was not good. Like, it doesn't really have a great reputation in terms of even legacy. Like, people don't remember it. I'd be surprised if people even listen to this. But, um... <laughs> well, also, we were trying to sandwich it in between a pretty heavy work of cichlet last week yes. that we didn't know how we were going to feel about. And we have, like, a scarier text Yeah, we've got, we've got another dark one next week. Next week, and we know I don't like dark and scary. And so Joe was trying to do me a solid and stick in something, like, hilarious. And, you know, I love The Simpsons. I loved Rugrats. Mm-hmm. I loved Daria. Like, these are my wheelhouse. There was no reason to not like this book, except that it's garbage. <laughs> I was taking a drink and I almost spat it out. <laughs> yeah, like, it's... I feel like there just aren't enough words to help people understand how truly frustrating this text is. Like, it's... It's repetitive, it's so repetitive. Like, did you Boring. hear the number of times we talked about Kevin coming back? And then Kevin's back. And then Kevin's back. And then Kevin's and back. And literally, Kevin doesn't do anything no. except punch Dennis in the face. Yeah, it, sometimes he roundhouse kicks him, in fairness. Um, it's just, and there's like every gross thing that can happen. Like, he slices his finger, Dennis slices his finger on the champagne bottle and bleeds everywhere. And then... Mm-hmm. He gets a champagne cork in the eye. In the eye. And then they stop suddenly when they're driving and he face plants into Beth's crotch. And there's a whole thing about vaginas. Not even. It's like her underwear saying hello because... Oh, no, but, well, there's the whole thing about how vaginas smell. Because that's, oh, that's right. Oh. That's um that's really it's prime comedy after grade seven. It's like every stupid gross. There's a point where he gets food, his shirt gets covered in food, and so Beth makes him take it off and like raccoons steal it. It's mm-hmm. just everything. You're just like, what is this? What is this? Weird thing is though, is even as you're describing it, like the part with him falling into her crotch, like we've seen this in mm-hmm. other films, in other books, and it mm-hmm can be done funny it can be done raunchy funny it can mm-hmm. be done kind of sweet saccharine funny mm-hmm. it can be a little bit this person's not all right and he needs to learn a life lesson funny mm-hmm. it isn't any of those things Mm-mm. it just always reads flat yep. uninspired yep and honestly like an old man desperately trying to be young yep this whole thing the whole enterprise is so desperately out of touch that's exactly it. I, it really feels like it was written about 25 years later than anybody mm-hmm. might possibly have been interested in it. I could have seen this being written and then made in like a kind of Porky's era, sort of like mm-hmm. titillation, sex comedy, lots of gross out humor, lots of boobs. But that's been done. We're done with that. We're That's over. But even that, I would argue at least is funny like animal house (laughs) is funny american pie is funny it may not be for everybody but (laughs) you can watch it and see the setup and the jokes and they're being executed smartly and wisely like i had so much difficulty reading this because i would just have to literally close the book or i would sigh like i've been doing on the podcast just all the time like i was reading on the train and, and brian would just be like are you going to be okay? Because <laughs> I was writhing, I was moaning. I was like, why? Why do I have to read this? It's just so bad. It's incredibly cringy and not in a like, oh, like this person's going there and I'm a little bit embarrassed for them. It's cringy in the like, this is a horrific failure to execute. Mm-hmm. And I'm embarrassed for the person who wrote this. Yeah. Like I'm embarrassed for a grown man. And I don't, no thank you. 
The other really odd thing, and just in case people are curious, you can pick this up in the first couple of pages. So the book opens with this valedictorian speech. Like that's the first probably 10 to 15 pages is like the setup, the description of what the air is like, how hot it is, how everybody's stuck together. And you'll get a sense for everything that is wrong with this book in those opening pages, which is one of the reasons why I texted you so early. (laughs) But it's very oddly written. Like you're getting this snapshot picture of this overweight man who is thinking about escaping from the gym so that he can go eat something. You've got the principal thinking about how she wants someone to open the door, but it's locked and all of the different ways that she's going to sadistically torture the janitor who is elected not to work that day and did this as a personal F you to her. But like you're jumping around into all of these different characters' points of view and they're all just absolutely atrocious, selfish. They're just like distanced from reality characters And it's all intercut with stuff about bodily fluids, about smells, like repulsive smells. It's just all vulgar and excessive. But it's such a weird artistic choice to say, I'm going to open this book not by even giving you insight into who this character Mm -hmm. is, just by laying the foundation that everyone is awful. Yep. It's a very, very oddly written book in that sense. And I don't know if you felt that, because it does continue throughout the book where there's all these segue thoughts that they then try to incorporate into the film in like weird flashback kind of cutaways, which also don't work. No, well, none of it works. Like, I mean, on a really really basic level, none of it works. And I, I honestly can't tell you why. And part of what I struggle with here is that like, listeners are going to be shocked to hear this, but I'm not the target audience for gross out humor. Mm. Not the target audience for a sex comedy. And so I understand, like, objectively that those can be enjoyable, funny. And, like, I can I can sometimes have that experience of, like, oh, I'm laughing at this thing that's kind of against the way I, like, look at the world and I'm feeling a little sheepish about it. Mm-hmm. I did not have any of that here because none of this is funny. But I feel like I can't even really articulate its failings because I'm so poorly versed in the genre except to say that I feel like it is trying and failing to be something that is already wildly out of date in terms of what people are interested in and was when it was written in 2007. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that this was written in 2007 and still has like, I'm sorry, it has wheelchair jokes. It is generously peppered with the R word and characters who like apparently have various disabilities are just fodder for hilarious humor. Oh yeah. So Beth has a dead brother who... He was, what, developmentally challenged? Yeah, apparently, and also had leukemia, I guess. And these are hilarious yeah. things. So these are things where it's like they're they're meant to be foot-in-mouth faux pas that Dennis and Rich commit when Beth first comes into the party where they're like, well, you know, our word. And she's like, my brother was developmentally challenged. Actually, she actually says, my brother was our word. Yeah, it's a bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And like (laughs) the central premise of the friendship between Rich and Dennis is homophobic, right? The reason Dennis thinks Rich is gay is because one time apparently Rich suggested they act out a scene from Star Wars, but use their penises as the lightsabers. Mm -hmm. Ha ha. Are you, are you laughing yet? Oh my God. It's so funny, you guys. But their entire friendship is rooted in homophobia and we never learn enough about Rich to know whether he really is struggling with his sexuality. We don't even know if the town is homophobic or if it's just Dennis is kind of an asshole. Mm -hmm. We never actually get a sense of who Rich is as a person. And so there's this weird scene that I think is meant to be meaningful where Rich is like, I know that everybody thinks I'm gay, but like, they don't know me. You're my best friend. You know me. Why do you think I'm gay? And it's like, what is happening here? Because (laughs) I don't even know enough about Rich to know whether I'm supposed to take this overture seriously or not. Yeah. And how can you when in the exact same conversation, he's talking about how his dad effectively beats him? Yes. Which, by the way, we're all just we're all just fine with. Yeah, like, that's we're dancing just... around it. It's, it's an open secret that nobody seems to care about. I think the most galling moment in that regard is not even Dennis's parents. Know that this kid, who's their son's best friend, is getting the 
ass beaten out of him on mm-hmm. a regular basis and and we're all just like ha yeah it's interesting because i kept turning back to the discussions that we've had about boy-centric YA. <laughs> so I was thinking back to Paper Towns. I was thinking back to The Perfect Date slash The Stand-In. And those books look like freaking gems at this point. <laughs> but they're tracing the We same... found a way to make Joe like John Green. Just oh make him read gosh. a lot of Larry Doyle. <laughs> <laughs> I am being punished. <laughs> I feel like the John Green fans did this to me. (laughs) No, but in reality, I mean, it's so startling to go back and compare. I didn't particularly care for either of those two books, but you can see the DNA is shared between all of them. And yet it's a no brainer at all to say those other two are better than this one, despite the fact that they're still occasionally aiming for these lowbrow things like the relationship between Rich and Dennis is very similar to that relationship that we talked about in Paper Towns where you're Mm -hmm. just like are these people friends Mm -hmm. but that was so much more nuanced like we didn't like that character and I don't know if you're supposed to but like here you don't even know who the characters are no because they aren't people I mean Doyle doesn't know how to not caricature people. So like even in this scene where I guess we're supposed to be finding out about Beth's deepest fears for herself, that she truly has peaked in high school, that this is it. The end result of that conversation, that supposedly meaningful conversation is, yep, hot girls suck. Mm -hmm. I mean, are you kidding? Are you freaking kidding me? In 2007, he's writing this kind of shallow complete nonsense imagining of teenage girls and their sexuality and their identities like there's zero humanity in this book no no because not even dennis we know the most about dennis but he too Mm -hmm. is just gross Mm -hmm. i mean the fact that his take home is if you don't get fat i'll marry you and that's supposed to be the happy ending are you kidding Yeah. And really, I mean, when you boil it down, the life lesson here is it's not the I need to go out and have one night of fun before I continue on my way to becoming a responsible adult. It's, oh, okay, well, I never had any of this. Now I've experienced it and my life will continue. Whereas all of these other people that I kind of already had put into their stereotypical boxes will remain in their stereotypical boxes because there is no value to them. Well, I mean, the end message is go ahead and write people off because they are exactly the one-dimensional sort of tools to your narrative that you always thought they were. Yeah, Yeah. there's absolutely no complexity here. Yeah, the bully is always the bully. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to say, can we talk about the stupid movie so we can be done with this garbage? Yes. Okay. So roll that trailer. (laughs) Your valedictorian. I would like to say here today the one thing I will regret if I never say. I love you, Beth Cooper. And yes, when I graduate, I'm not going to keep hanging around my old high school like some kind of creepy loser who can't get an adult girlfriend. You know who you are. You. You embarrassed me, but it was so sweet. I'll have to let you live. On July 10th, there's a little soiree at my house tonight. Well, maybe we can stop by. That's the Trinity. She's everything he ever wanted. Don't be so nervous, she can smell fear. Ooh, fear. And one thing he never expected. Prepare to die. Kevin, stop! He is going to kill me! Now, the girl of his dreams. Sorry, I was unaware I was admitting that. Is going to show him the night of his life. You have never been with a woman. Susie Q's, yum. My mom says yum. Yum. 
Okay, so as we mentioned off the top, the film is also written by Larry Doyle, and it is directed by one Chris Columbus, who is a very well-known director. Let me walk you through this. Ready? (sighs) Yeah, I guess. Whatever. Director of Adventures in Babysitting, Home Alone, Miss Deadfire, Nine Months, Stepmom, Rent, the first two Harry Potter movies, Percy Jackson and the Olympians... Like, he's very hit and miss. So some of these movies are well-known. They're classics. They're beloved. And then other films are heaping garbage fires, just like this film. If I ever see him in real life, like if I'm ever anywhere and he's there, I'm just going to yell, I remember I love you, Beth Cooper. (laughs) I'm going to yell that at him until security takes me away. Uh, I mean, he's known to be a very workmanlike director, so there's nothing particularly interesting in the way that he shoots this film, considering the number of times that it's kind of like a party heist movie, like they're constantly trying to make escapes from Kevin. Okay, so this movie stars Hayden Panettiere, who at this point had already been in Heroes, the TV show on NBC. Dennis is played by Paul Rust, who would go on, I think some people know him for the Netflix series Love that he did with Gillian Jacobs from Community that ran for a couple of seasons. I find him insufferable. I hated Love because of him. And Mm. as an actor, I find him just extremely off-putting because he always plays this character where he's a kind of meebish nerd who is awkward around women and just you know like glasses and he's also a deeply bizarre casting choice in a narrative that is all about how like no one at school can even tell whether or not he's been through puberty Mm -hmm. and they cast a man who is 28 at the time of filming and seriously looks older than me yeah and it's very striking when you put him up against Hayden Panettiere who legitimately I mean she's not a teenager when she's filming this but she looks like it almost everyone else looks their age which is what makes him so weird is as a casting choice like he's not a strong leading man and also he looks nothing like the character is supposed to look and also his casting choice makes scenes like when Hayden Panettiere whatever her name is Beth Cooper has to like (laughs) She has to, like, pretend that he's her little brother when they're buying booze. Oh, my gosh, yes. And that scene just makes zero sense. Everybody involved in making this movie is just walking around being like, yeah, no, this is this makes sense. Mm-hmm. I just want to smack all of them. I can't help but wonder if he's cast because he might look like Larry Doyle. Because I really got a strong autobiographical sense <sighs> off of the text. God, And so since he was the screenwriter, he might have been a bit more involved in the production of the film, so... Either that or that's a visual joke. Like, ha ha, he's clearly not a teenager because he looks like a 40-year-old man. But they never play on it. They play on the opposite. So it's just confusing. What if we just had a moratorium on white men telling stories? (laughs) Put them on a boat. Take that boat to an island. I'm not saying forever, (laughs) but like, could we have a solid decade where we don't have to hear white men tell us anything? Or particularly not these kinds of stories, which are apparently meant to be the seminal coming of age. <laughs> seminal. Nerd gets the girl. Seminal. Haha. <laughs> oh, I just got semen in my eye. Are you laughing yet? <laughs> you know, we could put them all on an island. Just all the cishet white men. Mm-hmm. Just go on an island for a decade. And occasionally they could pen some sort of like apologia. I welcome that. Mm-hmm. But I'm just like, I watched this movie and I was just like, this is not even mediocre. And there is no way we would see an equivalent of this garbage a story from any other demographic. It would not get made. No. No. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Sorry, we're still doing the cast. God help us. We're never going to be done. Yeah, sorry. Okay, let me <laughs> run through the rest of this. So um, I'm trying to think if anybody else is actually known for things so rich is played by jack carpenter who i honestly kept confusing for one of the wolf brothers back from paper towns (laughs) he looks like he could be a cousin he does and i will say i actually think he is one of the better casting choices in the film because he gave rich a certain amount of like humanity that is missing from the text i i actually kind of liked watching him on screen He makes the movie quotes a bit more palatable as well because he can actually add inflection that's not possible in the text. Yeah. Yes. Okay. K. 
Tammy is our sole person of color. So apparently two years later, allowed Larry Doyle to recognize that there were actually black people who live in the world. So she's played by Lauren London. Therese is played by Lauren Storm, and she was apparently asked by Chris Columbus to gain 30 pounds for this role, so they couldn't even seek out a fuller-figured actress. They asked a skinny girl to add weight. And she, I mean, she's wildly not fat. No. Oh my god, no. no. All of those jokes are so, they make no sense in the context of, like, this is not a girl who would be known for her, her fatness. Mm-hmm. Maybe that she has boobs might have been, like, the grade 10 gag that mm-hmm. she would have been subject to. But, I mean, it's just ludicrous. Utterly ludicrous casting. As always, yeah. Mm-hmm. I will say that Therese, the character of Therese, is, to me, the only thing that works in either the book or the film. And I think that it's because a lot of the jokes are about how she's very self-aware and yet simultaneously completely unaware of the things that she should be taking offense to, the things that she maybe shouldn't be saying. I kind of like that they were playing with the fact that she's a bit of a idiot savant. Mm. Mm. And I felt like Lauren Storm actually does a, a pretty good job of making Therese a kind of fun diversion in this film, which helps to cut through just the icky tackiness of all the rest of it. Yeah, I would give you that. Okay, so Sean Roberts, as you mentioned, is uh plays Kevin and then he's the rapist from Degrassi (laughs) I mean sure if we want to refer to him as such I mean that's who he is though I haven't watched Degrassi we've established this yeah no I know (laughs) I know it's fine okay and then uh Denis's parents are played by Alan Ruck from Ferris Bueller and ha 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 it's funny joke super funny funny because he still can't get laid as an adult it's super funny super hilarious yeah we get to see him with his pants around his ankles it's funny we get to see not one but two different men in their underwear as though being seen in your underwear is the most undignified of things like don't have a conversation with a man in their underwear don't look at a man who might be wearing underwear and not pants like it's yeah yeah okay and then cynthia stevenson plays the mom she's familiar she has a very like carolyn in the city look to me i think she's the mom from air bud if i'm not mistaken (laughs) way to bring in the can con (laughs) (laughs) well the movie is filmed i mean it was filmed like a bunch of places in greater vancouver but the scene where they are driving Mm -hmm. is the main street of the part of vancouver where i live really yeah, and that was very distracting for me because it's supposed to be old tobacco road that they're driving down in those scenes. Mm. And it's... Uh, Not it's so old the, in real life. It's the main drag of a suburb. So, anywho, whatever. It's fine. Honestly, there are so few moments of joy in all of this because, <laughs> as we mentioned, Larry Doyle wrote the screenplay for this. So, literally, it just duplicates all of the problems of the book. The only thing that it does is it removes... The final confrontation where Kevin and his goons show up at the cottage at the lake. Yeah. Which I was so thankful for because I just did not think I could take another one no. of those. Nope. I mean, really the best thing about this movie is that it's... um 80-something minutes? Yeah, and it's weird because Wikipedia says its runtime was 102 minutes. And I'm like, I would have remembered that because I would have remembered <laughs> hating my life. So I don't know if there's like an extended cut that some masochist watches on the regular... But like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe there was secretly 20 minutes of credits that neither one of us, like the minute that this looked like it was wrapping up, I was shutting my computer. I could just not. Yeah. I mean, I took a second to hurl some curses at anyone involved in the production of the film. But other than that, yeah, no, same, same, Mm -hmm. same. I was going to try to frame this idea that Beth was at peace with the idea that she had had a really good life in high school and... She almost seems content with it. In the book, as you said, it's very dismissive because we're inside Dennis's head. And for him, he's kind of like, sure, whatever. I've got the rest of my life to go on and live and I'm going to be amazing. Yep. But then the film actually plays it as this emotional pick-me-up where Dennis tries to reassure Beth that no, she's got so much more to offer and she should try to go to college. And it's treated as 
a moment of genuine intimacy where you you're I think meant to hope that they get together because that's also how the film leaves their characters because yeah. we don't have the Kevin fight we just get a drop off at home and then they have a bit of a kiss but we still get the I'll marry you in 10 years or whatever at the reunion and you're kind of like Oh, this movie thinks that it's a romance now. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) no, you failed at that again. Yeah, no, you're really bad. I have two things in terms of the film's reception. Mm -hmm. The first is that I was wrong off the top. It is not 34% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is 13, which makes a lot more sense. Yes, we we have been vindicated. (laughs) Number two, in I Wonder If She'd Like to Take That Back news... Lisa Schwartzbaum of Entertainment Weekly gave this movie a B plus, and she called it a pleasant, low-key teen comedy, concluding, this is a story that is essentially timeless. Well, okay, so I can, I can understand. <laughs> this is more than you laughed reading the entire book and watching the entire film. That line is the funniest thing I have read in relation to I Love You, Beth Cooper. I can understand why, though, because they're trying to suggest that this is like a tale as old as time. It's the nerd who falls in love with the popular girl, and then they go and have like a misadventure, which, yes, you can tell that that's what Larry Doyle thinks he is doing. (laughs) But as we've repeatedly talked about, he's doing it so poorly that it's just not at all. Whereas I like this quote from the end of the slant review that says, It would be easy to call Beth Cooper casually sexist, homophobic, and racist, but such problems are less conscious choices than the inevitable result of Columbus and Doyle's mean-spirited condescension. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Dennis may love Beth Cooper, but this movie does not. Yes, that's a really good point. There is nothing lovable about Beth Cooper in either book or film. They even acknowledge that. Like, why did you love me? Because I sat behind you. Behind you. Yeah. Because that yeah. is the level of disdain. And I think condescension to me is the perfect word. It's the perfect that Larry word. Doyle feels for teenagers, which is hysterical if this is an autobiography. But specifically for teenage girls, right? Like the level of disgust for any teenage girl in this text or the film is just so palpable, right? They are to a one, either uneffable mm-hmm. or horse. Yeah. That is, that is it. We're back to, I think, someone who had a high school experience that mirrors our protagonist and is taking it out. He's working through the issues in this book, and he has got his virgin horror dichotomy firmly established. Save it for your therapist, Larry Doyle. Don't make me sit through it. Like, I'm thinking about Patty, because... Dennis has had a girlfriend. Her name is Patty. Mm -hmm. Apparently, she's ugly. I guess she's fat in the book. And in the film, oh my gosh, she has acne. That makes her unworthy of love forever and also a bad person. She's the only character in the book, other than Rich, who expends an ounce of care or attention on Dennis. Mm -hmm. She's the only character who actually seems to care that he's getting progressively more mauled. And yet, she is considered a grotesque punchline to his life she's a disgusting troll (sighs) and the hilarious visual signifier in this movie you are a hundred percent right because it happens not just with patty but in all of the flashbacks Mm -hmm. whenever people are younger and i'm putting that in quotation marks because it's never clear like all of the actors just always look the same but it's like we put glasses on them so they're you know five years younger or something like that but they always have the most disgusting over-the-top acne as though to suggest this is what teenagers are yep they are horribly mutated acne monsters and it's only when they grow out of this that they become legitimate people but you know if you still got acne like oh get away from me you repulsive yep yep yeah yeah but it is surprising the number of people who tried to reclaim either the book or the film or both as a humorous take on a conventional story there were so many reviews of both that i read that were just kind of casually okay with everything saying you know like it's funny 
you know, he's playing it a little bit safe. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I read two reviews that referred to it. I'm not even going to tell you who said it because I don't want them to have any clicks. But I read two <laughs> reviews that referred to it as refreshingly un-PC. <laughs> and one person I will give credit for their bad take to is the blog Cinematical. Okay. Which said that uh, the problem with this film is that it has taken a good R-rated novel and tried to make it into a PG-13 film. Yeah, that's the problem. The problem with this film is there's not enough semen on the friggin' camera lens. That's the problem. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I feel like I'm ready to wrap this up, but I'm yep. just going to leave readers with this this one fantastic scene from the book, which thankfully does get excised in the, oh, not R-rated version of the movie, yeah. which is that in order to buy beer... Oh, God, I forgot. Beth literally prostitutes herself out to a guy who's working at the service desk of a gas station by agreeing to touch his penis first inside the pants and then out. To which Dennis then responds, oh, you're not Beth Cooper, because all of yeah. a sudden she's not pure and virginal. Yep. 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 And that yep. is I Love You, Beth Cooper. Thanks, I hate it. Yeah, that's time that we're never going to get back. Nope. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. But I don't know. Th this could be the worst episode of the podcast ever. I apologize to people if you did not enjoy this. I yeah. feel like we tried to provide some serious critique, but also made it humorous in how much we hated this. But I, like, I hated this. I mean, here's the thing. The kissing booth was bad. It was written by a child. Mm -hmm. The stand-in was bad. They really tried to make it better in the film, and they ended up just making it more boring. This was irredeemably bad and written by a grown adult. And when mm -hmm. they made the film version, they didn't even attempt to make it better. The end. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Let us never speak of it again, except to Hawaii Bingo. <sighs> bingo! Not a good bingo. All right. Do you have any YA bingo? I've got a queer secondary character for you, I was going to say you, queer Brenna. secondary character, because it was like super well done. Yeah. Uh, we got a parents just don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's non-figures in this. I almost wish that we could have gotten a little bit more of them, particularly in the film, because at least they get to imbue the characters with a bit yeah. of warmth and affection. Yeah. But I would have loved this idea, like tell this story from their perspective where they're like, yeah. we have this annoying child. Loser kid. He's such <laughs> an idiot. Like we can't wait for him to go off to college. But in the meantime, we have to park the car in the country road just so that we can have sex. Like, we just need a little bit of wait time from him. Because he never leaves the house. <laughs> yep. How much funnier would that book be? It would be a lot funnier. Because, let's face it, there's already just nothing but disdain for these characters anyway. So why not just ramp it up to 100 and not try to pretend you're a YA text at the yeah. same time? Let's acknowledge the truth that sometimes parents hate their children. But not in an abusive <laughs> hit them way. <laughs> oh, okay uh we've got some really delicious house porn when they go to that big house party yep that house could have been a gymnasium welcome to we've set another movie in greater vancouver mm-hmm mm -hmm. yes i feel like uh when we redesigned the bingo card and as a gentle reminder to listeners we're still looking for bingo slots yeah if you have listened to this whole episode, please, please send us some bingo suggestions. <laughs> yes, but I feel like we can trade out house porn for just Vancouver. Just Vancouver. Yep, yeah. definitely. Because it's always that. It's always it Vancouver. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Apparently all teenage stories happen in the Pacific Northwest. Amazing. Mm -hmm. We haven't even gotten to Twilight yet. There's not a director cameo, but there's an interesting casting moment in the film. Okay. The girl singing the song on stage about how much she hates her high school colleagues. Oh, for yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, right yeah that's Christopher Columbus's daughter. Uh, nepotism. <laughs> Please cast my daughter. She has no talent. She's actually fine, but... There's nothing wrong with her, but she shouldn't have tried to get into this garbage. I do like the point where the principal says, thank you, Angelica. And she goes... It's Angelica. 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 There we go. <laughs> yeah, that part was okay. I was like, oh, okay. Maybe the film will be redeemed. Maybe it'll be funny. <laughs> it wasn't funny. No, it wasn't. Enough. That was the high point of the film, and it was at the one-minute mark. Yes. Yep. 
I mean, the credits, the end credits are pretty darn good, too, because they meant the movie was over. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to talk about this anymore. What are we watching next week? Okay, so we are going from unhappy experiences on our own end from reading and watching pure dreck to sad, sad, sad. So we are going to be checking out, I've forgotten it now. It's called Mysterious Skin, Joe. There we go. Yes, Mm -hmm. so we're going to be reading Mysterious Skin. The book is from 1995, and the film is from 2006. So it's celebrating its 15th year anniversary. No, wait, that can't be right. That's not the right math. That is not the right math. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to read Mysterious Skin anyway. You know what's fun is that our scheduling mishaps of which there have been a few in the last little while, mm-hmm. are funnier to me than anything Larry Doyle penned in this book or screenplay. Yeah. Yeah. Just want to put that out there. I got to say, I hope that Larry Doyle hears this or hears <laughs> that we've been trash-talking him and then just gets to listen to like an hour plus of us just absolutely ragging on him. I'm surprised this is one of our longer podcasts, but it turns out we're really good at being mad about things. Yeah, this is true. Um, if you have subjected yourself to I Love You Beth Cooper and you'd like to join our support group, you can find us <laughs> on Twitter at hashtag HKHSPod, and I'm on Twitter at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. Joe, where can they find you? I am at B Stool My Remote, and that's the letter B. And if you have a longer diatribe, I don't think anyone could possibly convince us that this is a good book or a good film. But if you've got a diatribe about your experiences with this book or anything else that you'd like to get in touch with us about, you can send us an email to hkhspod at gmail.com. And until next time, I'm going to try to learn to love again, Joe, (laughs) with our project for next week with Mysterious Skin. So I will see you on the page. Yes, and I will see you on the screen.